Welcome to After the JAG Corps, Navigating Your Career Progression, a podcast for judge advocates leaving military service. After the JAG Corps assists officers transitioning from the military law practice by learning from individuals who have successfully embarked on new careers, providing insight on rewarding professional opportunities, job search strategies, resumes, the value of your military experience, and more. Now, here is your host, Tom Welsh. Today on the podcast, we're talking to Captain William Bill Toady, a 1979 graduate of the United States Naval Academy who spent the bulk of his 25-year career in submarines, including as commanding officer of the fast attack boat USS Indianapolis, Commodore of Submarine Squadron 3, and as commanding officer of Fleet Anti-Submarine Warfare Command in Norfolk, Virginia. Following his retirement from the Navy in 2006, Bill held a number of executive positions with various defense companies, including as vice president, president, and finally, as the chief executive officer of Spartan from May 2019 to December 2021. And today, we're going to talk about his recently published book, From CO to CEO, A Practical Guide for Transitioning from Military to Industry Leadership. Bill, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Tom. So, Bill, my first question, why did you write this book? So I started accumulating lessons for folks transitioning well and transitioning badly within a few months of me joining industry in 2006. And, you know, honestly, when I transitioned myself, I took every course the Navy would offer me at the time to prepare me for the transition. And like everybody else in those classes, I believed everything I was told. I know that several of the courses are substantially unchanged from when I took them in 2006. And when you're transitioning yourself, you know nothing about industry, and you want to believe that the Navy does a good job to prepare you. All the services do a really good job in preparing transitioning military personnel in some areas. For example, wonderful review of veterans' benefits and things like that, how to interface with the VA. You know, if you're going to receive any disability, those kinds of things, they treat you very well. What I didn't learn until I entered industry is how poorly they prepare you for industry. And in fact, much of what I was told in those transition classes when I was transitioning proved to be wrong, proved to be incorrect. Over time, they were just kind of nuisances, things that I had to unlearn or recalibrate. I was told this, it turns out to be why, things like that. But when I kept seeing the same problems occur again and again and again over the course of my 15 years in industry, it reinforced the point with me that these informational defects were structural. They weren't transactional. They didn't just happen to me. There are things the services tell everybody wrong. Now, over 200,000 people transition from active duty to industry each year. And recent surveys tell us that over 50% of the people who transition are substantially dissatisfied with the transition advice they got from their service. And so as I was kind of approaching the date where I realized time for me to retire for a second time from industry, I started thinking maybe I need to write some of these ideas down and tell people what the military fundamentally gets wrong about the transition and what the truth is. I started just writing them as an article, as lessons, and then it became so big, it was clear to me I had more than an article here. This was approaching the size of a book. And I really did need to wait until I retired from industry to release this thing once I realized this was going to be a book. Because writing and publishing and advertising a book is a lot of the work. It's essentially a full-time job. And so I couldn't let my real job, when I was CEO in particular, conflict with the book. So when I was done being CEO, 
that's when I started devoting full time to the book, which has been released on April 5th. So Bill, how long did it take you once you started working on this book in earnest? How long did it take you to write it? Yeah, so it took me part-time, let's say nights and weekends, about six months. And then when I finally said, okay, I think it's ready for the publisher, it took a year from the date I said I was ready for it to actually find its way into bookstores, right? And a lot of that has to do with my newness and writing a book, right? I've written articles, published, I'd published 30 articles in even journals like the Wall Street Journal. So I thought I knew how to write, but writing a book is very different than writing articles. And so the publisher wanted me to bring on a developmental editor. And so I went through a couple of rounds of developmental editing and then copy editing and then typesetting. It's a very involved process. And then, of course, recording the audio book took another month. I'm just so glad that's all over and now we can focus on the book. And <laughs> here it is. And so I'm happy that it's out. It's hit bookstore shelves and available on all online bookstore platforms. Your usual suspects, Amazon, Barnes & Noble, Books A Million. But anyway, what's more important is what is contained in the book. And on that, Bill, I read it. I have to say it's relatively an easy read. And you can read it and starts and stops. And it's really, I thought, convenient for that way. The other thing that I thought was really good was you make this book applicable to someone who has done five or six years and the person who has spent 20 years serving their country in various positions. And it has essentially educational things of walking them through the different kinds of options that are out there and the importance of researching and understanding what you're getting into. What is the mindset a transitioning military member should have when now after however many number of years serving their country, they now want to go take their leadership skills to industry or somewhere else that is not involving uniforms? Yeah, so the mindset's going to be different depending on what the person's background is and what kind of position they're looking for in industry. But there are a couple of, I would say, standard grounding concepts that apply to everybody. You're right that I do try to encompass the entire spectrum of folks that did one tour in the military, the folks that are done a full career in the military and are retiring, including, by the way, flag and general officers. I often get the question, what's the best point in my career to make that transition? And the answer depends on what you want out of life. There's no hard and fast rule for anybody. I encourage everybody to stay in because service is a calling, and I encourage everybody to stay in as long as they're enjoying it, and they have a viable career path, and they're not agitating to get out. So that was kind of rule number one, because I get the question all the time from junior officers, for example, is it better for me to get out after one or two tours in the military, or will I get a better civilian job if I'm a senior officer when I transition? And the answer to that question is a very firm, it depends, because some people benefit substantially from experience as a senior officer. If they get the right kind of jobs in the military, exposure to, the, let's say, the political military world or the acquisition world, other people will also retire as a senior officer, but they've kind of done the basic walking and tackling kind of jobs for their entire military career that give them no special advantage when they transition to industry. And for those people, there's no benefit transitioning as a senior officer. So again, it all depends. I would say the more time you have in industry, the more time you are likely to have to achieve your civilian career goals. On the other hand, for every one person I've seen 
who got out after a junior officer tour, for example, and spent 25, 30 years in industry, I've seen thousands of people. And by the way, what I mean to say is for every one of those people who got out, spent 25 years in industry, and just completely hit it out of the park, became CEO of Huntington Ingalls like Mike Petters. You have hundreds of thousands of people who got out after one tour in the military. 30 years later, they're essentially doing the same job they were doing when they first got out. The odds are not in your favor that says everybody who gets out after one tour is going to do better than everybody who stays in the military for a full career. There's so many variables in that of it depends that that it has to be evaluated on a case-by-case basis. But one of the other constants that I tell everybody who's transitioning, and this is said somewhat tongue-in-cheek, but I'm serious when I say it, all of us military people realize that leadership is hard, but it's harder when you're leading people who've been actually quit. And that's an epiphany that I've seen many of my military friends learn maybe six minutes too late (laughs) after they've transitioned industry, and they find themselves on the street because they've been let go, because they didn't adapt their leadership style to one more appropriate to civilian industry. There's a bunch of those kinds of lessons in the book. I try to cover the entire spectrum of situations that transitioning folks might find themselves in. When I saw that comment, I underlined it and I marked it because I was going to ask you about that. I thought that was very insightful. But being a 28-year vet myself, I care about old people going to look for a job. So is it a matter of I'm walking out, they're going to say, thank you for your service. Captain, here's the job we want you to do. And we just want to throw a whole bunch of money out there at you. Oh, you would wish the second part would come true, right? (laughs) And one of the things I talk about in the book is a lot of people do overestimate their street value when they transition. People are commonly told that, particularly if you're retiring from the military, if you retire tomorrow, you can double your pay in a day. And they assume that means their civilian salary is going to be two extractive duty salary. It's generally not the case. What that statement means, if it's true, is that your total compensation, including your retired pay, can be 2x what you're making on active duty, which is great, by the way. But a lot of times, people will calculate their base pay, their compensation, their BAQ, you know, my case, submarine pay, my nuclear power bonus, and things like that. And they go two times that equals what I should be asking for as a civilian. And that is almost never true. And so I do give a lot of guidance in the book on how to think about compensation when you leave the military. The other point you're alluding to there in your question, Tom, is that, you know, old people, what am I going to contribute to this company? Here's your job. Here's your compensation and start today. Just because you're retiring as a captain, because I retired as a captain, does not mean that you don't have enough runway in front of you in your civilian career that a company would be unwilling to invest in you. Explain the concept of the runway, what you're talking about here. Age is a protective trait. A company can't not hire you because you're 46 and your competition is 42 years old. That's an age factor. And that's a protected trait. However, let's say what the company is trying to fill is a position that they believe is going to require five years training and then five years of on-the-job performance to pay back the investment they've made in you in that training. There's a whole bunch of job categories that 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 might fit in. So they have a 10-year pipeline that their candidate needs to be able to fulfill to perform successfully in the job. 
And let's say you're applying for that job at the age of 58. Now, they're not allowed to consider the age of 58 when they hire you. So it's unlikely that this person's going to remain in the job, in industry for 10 years to fulfill this 10-year pipeline. By the way, you can imagine that medical schools contemplate these factors too, right? So you say, well, that's unfair. Well, if a medical school knows that you have a 12-year timeline from the day you get accepted to medical school to the day you're board certified to perform, and they calculate that at the end of that 12-year cycle, you're approaching retirement age, is it unjust for them not to select you? in lieu of some other candidate who may contribute 20, 30, 40 years in that position. So there's a nuance in this that is perfectly legal. And so the company is allowed to contemplate pipeline, how much time you have left before you're likely to hit mandatory retirement age. And some companies do have mandatory retirement ages. And when they do, it's normally around 65 or likely retirement age. So that's the concept of runway. How much time do you have in front of you? Not how much time has passed, which is age, but how much time do you have in front of you that the company can consider when they think about whether it's going to be worth investing in? Do you have sufficient runway to pay that investment back? Because let me tell you, you want one of those jobs where a company is willing to invest in you. That's exactly the kind of job you want. If you transition too late in life and you have too little runway left, they may hire you or they're hiring you in as a job where you start paying back immediately. No development required. You can start turning the crank and making money to be crude about it, right? Making money for them immediately with no investment required, no training required. Sometimes that's the only option you have, particularly if you're a transitioning general flag officer. That may be your only option. However, if you transition somewhere, let's say in your 40s, there's plenty of time, even if you assume a retirement age of 65, there's plenty of time to be developed, have the company invest in you, and have a full career left at the end of that investment period to pay the company back. And that's why I say in the book that there may actually be a sweet spot where people want to accumulate substantial experience in the military, in my case, major command, where you've proven your ability to lead large organizations, and yet transition young enough that you've got enough runway to have a viable second career. And so that may be somewhere, if you're going to work 20 years, around age 45 may be that sweet spot. Earlier is better if you can get all those things crammed into your career. Like I did, I wanted to stay in. I had a lot of things I wanted to do. It didn't cause me to transition at too late of an age to still serve as CEO. One of the points you make in your book, Bill, is that transitioning military oftentimes look no further than the immediate future. You advocate you need to take the long view and ask yourself, where do you want to be in 10 years? Why is that? So this is one of the many questions that, that we were asked when I was doing my transition course that turned out to be wrong. A lot of times they say, what do you want to do in your next job? What do you want to do when you transition? That's the wrong question. The right question is, what do you want to be doing 10 years down the road? Because you can go several different paths. You can take path one where you 10 years, I want to be hitting the stride of my peak earning years. Path two, maybe I want to be retired for good. Path three, maybe I'd like to be kind of senior management in a large company where I have substantial profit and loss responsibility. The reason it's important for you to figure that out before you transition is 
hopefully you're going to be presented with several different career options or several different job options as you transition for your first job out of uniform. And it may be the right thing for you to do to trade off that first job in order to get where you want to be 10 years down the road. The first job that you're looking at may not look as good as another opportunity you're presented with, but the other opportunity, is that really where you want to go? So for example, I was presented with an opportunity to go into business development right out of the Navy, as are many transitioning military people. Okay, you were the head of anti-submarine warfare for the Navy, doctrine and requirements. We want you to sell back to the Navy our ASW capability, Captain Toei. That's business development. And that was a pretty lucrative, interesting-looking job from the compensation standpoint. But I decided what I really wanted to do was be a business leader, not a BD person, but a PL leader. And so I was offered a PL job. It started out with less money and it was substantially higher risk because I had never done this PL thing before and I wasn't quite sure what it would take. So high risk. But if I succeeded, potentially higher reward. So for me, straight out of the Navy, looking ahead 10 years, the right job was that one that paid me less initially because it was more along the lines of where I wanted to end up over the course of my civilian career. So that's what I mean by thinking ahead, not now, but ahead. We're going to turn to JAGS in a minute, but there was one more insightful, I mean, there was a lot of insight, don't get me wrong, but one that spoke to me was when you say hiring managers are cowards, the more senior jobs that are being advertised. Could you share the insight on that? So a hiring manager is the person in industry who opens a job posting called a requisition. And so generally, the hiring manager is going to be the boss of the person that he or she is hiring. The hiring manager wants to succeed in their role because that's how they get promoted, is to succeed where they are. In order to succeed there, they want to hire people who are going to help them succeed. What they want to see is evidence that the person that they are hiring has a high probability of success in the role that they've opened up. And that role is going to be in industry. So you're coming straight out of active duty. You've never been in industry before. How does that hiring manager convince themselves that you're going to succeed in your very first job in industry? It's tough, but it's up to you to provide that evidence to that hiring manager to give them the comfort they need to decide that you're the right person for the role. And you've got to do that with both of you knowing you've never been in an industry before. So if they've got two quasi-equally qualified candidates, one who, let's say, who's been in industry for five, seven years, and you who's just coming out, and maybe the one who's been in industry for five, seven years isn't quite a rock star or isn't doesn't exactly fit the skill set the hiring manager wants, but they know how industry works and you don't. Those are the kind of headwinds you're going to be fighting against when you try to apply for that job. And the more senior the position is, the more cowardly that hiring manager is going to be. If they're bringing you in at a manager level, and in my case, I was a Serb Commodore, I'd led at a pretty high level in the military. I have to convince them that I could perform in a business unit director level. I had 800 sales working for me, and now I'm going to have, what, 50 industry people working for me? And even that is a tough sell because they wonder, are you a martinet? Are you going to be barking out orders and making everybody run away? Do you understand what profit and loss is? Do you understand how a business really works? 
Do you have any financial acumen at all? Do you have any of the skills required to succeed in that business unit director position? And let's say it's not a director, but it's a vice president position. Let's say you're a flag officer trying to get hired into a VP position. It's even harder, unless it's a sell to my friends kind of position where all I am is a door opener and the VP title is kind of an honorific. Then if it's a real PL VP, yeah, probably not going to happen. The more senior it gets, the more cowardly they're going to behave when you're applying for the job. Bill, you have interacted with JAGs on the active duty side, and I'm sure in your different roles with industry, you have dealt with probably inside and outside counsel. More than I'd like to admit. (laughs) So a short question is, can JAG successfully make that transition to the corporate world? And if so, what, in your opinion, do they bring to the table? The answer to the question is a full-on yes, a wholehearted absolutely. In fact, one of my first hires in my first position in my first company, or my second position in my first company, was a Navy commander, JAG officer, who we hired as an associate general counsel. And he hit the ground running, and he's still with them. He's been promoted, obviously. He did extremely well. And in fact, as I was CEO, the company that acquired us while I was CEO, their general counsel was also a served Air Force officer, JAG. He was absolutely superb. So yes, JAG officers can transition extraordinarily well. There are, and I cover this in the book a little bit, you know, there are GC kind of positions where you're basically a law generalist. You need to know a smattering of labor law. You need to understand compliance, including profoundly government compliance. You need to understand corporate structures and legal entity acquisitions, perhaps, and mergers and things like that. Understand how the corporate governance work. You're generally going to be the shepherd for all corporate governance matters, including sometimes board of directors governance, in which case you might be serve as the board secretary. And you're going to be the shepherd for all outside counsel, because we generally do bring, particularly small companies, as as I've worked in the last seven years, we generally have two, three, maybe general counsel type attorneys at the staff level who then manage a stable of labor outside counsel, litigation outside counsel, compliance, you know, OSHA compliance outside counsel and folks like that. There's also a PL aspect to being a general counsel, right? Because you do have to understand how this, particularly if you're publicly traded, you know, what the SEC rules are and how compliance works from a financial standpoint, Sarbanes-Oxley, for example. So there is a lot of law that most of which you don't deal with when you're on active duty, but I've seen case after case after case where I wouldn't say easily learned, but it's adequately learned. And in many cases, learned so well that they rise from associate, assistant to associate to, to general counsel over the course of the career. Well learned. Then there's the compliance side. And, you know, usually the GC does need to be a past bar attorney and the associate general counsels as well. On the compliance side, the compliance officers are often degreed attorneys, but never passed the bar, not practicing attorneys. And many of them are not attorneys at all. They've grown up in the compliance world. And I would say for the compliance folks, there tends to be a glass ceiling. Once you get that compliance stamped in your forehead, you're going to be thought of as a compliance person forever. 
And it's very rare for a lawyer to laterally transfer from a compliance job to a GC type job. Now, I won't say that it never happens because I obviously I haven't been everywhere, but I've never seen it happen in you know large companies I've worked at, Raytheon, Hewlett Packard, places like that, or my friend attorneys at other large companies. And so that's one risk of going the compliance route, but it's a viable route. And for a big company in particular, the top end is pretty attractive from a compensation standpoint. So it can be very attractive to an attorney to go that route. It's probably less risky than the GC route and the general business, general counsel route, but both are viable in my view. Yeah, I think you know that one of the things that Navy JAGs do not do, which Army and Air Force JAGs do do, are contract. As a general rule, they don't do it. There's some who touch it tangentially. There's some that just because they're the only one that they've become contract attorneys. We've spent most of us a career learning new areas learning the Uniform Code of Military mm-hmm. Justice and learning all the administrative law that comes with it. And then maybe we go to an operational billet. And now we have to learn the law of armed conflict and the rules of engagement. But the key is, is being able to convince that hiring manager that that history of learning and coming up to speed quickly is something that most good lawyers can do. And you've done it. It sounds like that commander was able to convince you that he had the tools in the toolbox to do that. He did, and he learned the contract law. The interesting thing is that while you're correct that I've had Air Force and and Army JAGs come into the company, even though those services do allow their attorneys to serve in contract, most of them don't. Only the ones who've been in the acquisition side of their services do. Very fair point. The head of Army Contracting Command, for example, was a non-lawyer Army one-star who worked for me in the civilian world. And when he transitioned to industry, I hired him. He was fantastic, by the way, and not a lawyer. The other thing I'll say is a lot of, most especially big corporations, will hire lawyers. So you'll have, (laughs) again, I'm preaching to the choir here. You'll have attorneys who work for Kirkland and Ellis in the law, I'm sorry, in the contract law department and places like that, major law firms that are just tired of working 12 hour days and say, holy cow, that corporate law position sure does look good to me. I may make less money, but I'll probably go home at five. And so there is this continual supply of law firm contract lawyers who just are tired breaking their back. And for them, the money's not all that important because it's a lot, you know, hours just suck. And so companies will bring them in. For example, the company I, I was CEO of, again, I had an attorney who'd never been in the military and had worked contract law his entire career, supervised by former Air Force GC. And the Air Force GC probably didn't know as much about contract law as the attorney who'd come from a major law firm, but it didn't matter. I mean, the two of them worked extremely well together and got everything done we needed to get done. So don't be too afraid of the fact that you don't necessarily have a contract law background. There's plenty of opportunities, even if you don't. And that's where that military tradition or culture, if you're a good leader, of delegating and trusting someone comes into play, isn't it? No, exactly. Yeah. I happen to be reading, rereading, I should say, because I read it back when I was at the Academy, a book called The Quiet Warrior. It's a biography of Fruins. And even in the middle of World War II, he never let go of the, that virtue, is to hire good people, give them clear orders. And orders is a bad word in industry, by the way. Give them clear guidance and then trust them to do their job. And it's, it's true in industry as well. 
So Bill, we're getting close to the end here. This is the Commodore's corner here. What are the questions that I didn't ask or the points that I didn't make that you want to make? So in the book, I, I pound the point over and over and over again, that when you transition to industry, regardless of your rank, you need to think of yourself as an ensign all over again, because you don't know what you need to know to succeed in this new job. That point I hammer probably mercilessly may not apply to attorneys. I say that some of the core leadership skills for somebody like me, a line officer, some of the core leadership skills, obviously an understanding of the community that I came from, the Navy in general, and in my case, the submarine or anti-submarine warfare community, really important to keep that in the back of my head. But I need to learn a whole new set of skills, how to succeed as a business leader none of which I know. And so people that I've seen come in industry with this arrogant, I know more about submarines than you submarine company people will ever know. People who transition to industry with that attitude almost invariably fail. So I say, be humble, listen for the first three months. You know, the old Lincoln adage, I don't know if he actually said it, by the way, I've never been able to validate that Lincoln actually said this, but better to stay silent and let them think you were fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. It's good advice, regardless of whether you said it. Learn, take every opportunity to learn. And only when you're sure you know what's going on should you start speaking up. With attorneys, they're hiring you for your legal skill. They're gonna want you to start participating, I should say, almost immediately. So my point is that that point that I hammer so relentlessly in my book about pretend you're starting over again, may not pertain to attorneys to the degree it pertains to all these other career paths that I address in the book. Again, that is Bill Toady from CO to CEO, a practical guide for transitioning from military to industry leader. And it's available at Amazon, Barnes and Noble, Books a Million, and, and other places where you buy your books. You can go to my website too, Liam Toady, Tango Oscar, Tango India.com. So Bill, thanks again. Thanks a lot, Tom. Take care. Thank you for listening. If you like this podcast, be sure to subscribe and tell your friends. After the Jag Corps is a TJW 50 Associates LLC production.